What's up, everyone? Happy Saturday. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, no relation to Bob Vila. No. Although you did make a joke about it earlier this week. <laughs> How are you doing? He's, you know, I think we're related in spirit. You know, we're both just handymen. You know, real men who'd like to play with their tools. That's me and Bob Vila. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Um, so we have a lot of great, uh, you know, content to get to today. Uh, we're going to have a fantastic interview about Medicare for All and ask some pretty hard hitting questions about why it is that progressive politicians are not using this opportunity during the pandemic to actually push for uh, Medicare for All. Mark Dudzik uh, will join in for that conversation. Our commentary segments are they seem a little too local today because mm. both of us are going to talk about California. But I think that what's happening in California is really um, a symptom of what we're seeing across the country with neoliberal policies and um, basically exploiting not just any old labor, but prison labor. Yeah, <laughs> to- yeah it's just very it's very bleak and dystopian. It really is. It really is. Um, but we're going to do our best to have fun, even though we're dealing with some pretty um, terrible topics. We uh, also wanted to start off the show by talking a little bit about our you know, thoughts, some reflections on the Democratic National Convention, which took place over the last week. And um, Nando, I'm going to go ahead and just toss it to you first. What were your thoughts? Well, I did the Matt Taibbi, Joe Biden drinking game during his speech. Uh, I was actually on Zoom with a couple friends. Uh, you know, as, as, as buds do, you know, you watch the DNC and you get drunk. Um, and I mean, I got to say the whole thing, the whole DNC has just been this um, unbelievably soul-sucking uh, experience where you know you're seeing one of the deepest and broadest crises we've ever faced. Um, certainly, the biggest economic crisis at least in a hundred years. Uh, an absolute, you know, crippling health crisis that has had us in our homes for six months. And the DNC offers you nothing for any of those things. Literally nothing. You know, just a parade of speakers, all often. Republicans, uh, Colin Powell spoke. I mean, one of the pers- people that is single-handedly most responsible for the Iraq War, uh, one of the greatest crimes in the you know last two hundred years, and John Kasich. I mean, it's just it's all just so bleak in terms of the near term in 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 what like in the political outlook and and the DNC just confirmed all of it. I mean, just gives you nothing. Like we don't know anything what these people plan on doing if they do take power like literally nothing we just know that they're going to be like fundamentally decent human beings and they're not trump and that's all we got i can't help but think back at the 2016 election and how there was this just ridiculous theory among some people who identify as democrats some of whom might even identify as leftists who made this argument that if you elect someone as awful as Donald Trump, the whole country will suffer so much that it'll spark a revolution, that Mm. we'll finally get uh, a Bernie-like candidate um, who's considered viable by the majority of the electorate. And uh, the exact opposite happened. Exact opposite. I mean, Biden's whole campaign strategy is... Hey, look at me. I'm yeah. not psycho. Like, I, I'm not going to use federal agents against you if you protest. Great. That's yeah. awesome. But, you know, it's just it, it's amazing to me how on one hand we're confronted by the massive flaws in our system during this pandemic. 
And then on the other hand, you know, you have politicians. They remind me of that meme of the dog that's like sitting at a at a table, like reading a newspaper while everything's burning around it. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, everything's fine. You know, yeah, it's the, nothing to the violinists here. on the Titanic, you know, yeah. sinking as yeah. the Titanic sinking. They're playing the violin. I mean, it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, you know, I think you're right that, you know, there was this there, there was this idea that possibly like things would get so bad against uh, Trump that we would like hit rock bottom and 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 find some sort of like new type of politics uh, on the back end. I mean, I think what what ended up happening is that the vast majority of people just crave a sense of normalcy. Like, I mean, this the, the, the extreme daily chaos is exhausting to most people and they just crave a sense of normalcy and the DNC is giving it to them in spades. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's relatively well produced. It looks pretty competent. You know, everyone kind of says the right words uh are you sure you were watching it you thought it was relatively well produced i mean it was like in the sense that like disaster well no in the sense that like you know there wasn't like any major you know like collapses like you know there wasn't like it was fine is what i'm saying in in that sense from Mm -hmm. like a you know i guess from a production like technological standpoint it just kind of went off and you know i mean yeah it was corny and cheesy and and terrible in that sense but but it was like competently put together if that makes sense uh um, yeah and and i think that that's just that's literally what they're giving people and 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 nothing else like i mean we don't know if they support any sort of meaningful uh reform to the system to deal with the coronavirus pandemic um nothing just literally mask nothing mandate which there the will be mandate. a mask mandate. There will be a mask mandate. Yeah. Which was, um, you know, something that Biden said uh, on the last night of the DNC when he gave his speech. So that was like the most concrete, uh, I guess, policy that he mentioned yeah. uh, during his speech. But you know, the thing is, we've been trained to have such low expectations. And I was actually terrified that Biden's speech was going to be a complete and utter disaster yeah. because of obvious reasons, yeah. right? Um, and so when it was over, I was a little relieved, but it was amazing to like hear both Democrats and Republicans. Like I'm talking about hardcore conservatives on Fox news, you know, basically compliment Biden's speech as if it was like the best speech ever given. Um, Chris Wallace was complimenting him. I mean, it was a star studded Republican event in a lot of ways. You mentioned Colin (laughs) Powell. And so, okay, I get it. I get it. Maybe they they see the Democratic Party as the new Republican Party. And, um, you know, based on how uh, Biden legislated, it's not that far-fetched. It's all very depressing. It's very depressing. It's it's hard to talk about it because, you know me, like, I have a hard time holding back. But at the same time, I understand, you know, the threat of Trump's second term, right? So I don't want to discourage people from voting for Biden. But at the same time, I also got to call a spade a spade. And this administration isn't going to be great. We all know that. And normalcy is pretty awful when you consider policy-wise what was happening during our various phases of normalcy, right? I mean, Donald Trump is just this ugly, vulgar, transparent version of the normalcy. And I I think people forget about that. With the exception of what he did at the border and, and you know, what he did with federal yeah. agents. I mean, that's a little unprecedented. 
in in the latest issue of Jacobin, Matt Carp has a very long piece that kind of analyzes the political landscape. Uh, I highly recommend it to anyone. But the, he talks about how one of the defining trends of the Democratic Party in the last couple of years is the entrance of this new type of Democratic primary voter called the that he calls the Halliburton voter. Right. Like, you know, there was the Halliburton Democrat, um, you know, the just really beyond like what we had originally thought of, like good liberals in the suburbs. Now we're getting kind of like these ruling class conservatives that would that would always vote Republican entering the Democratic Party. And those are the people that the Democratic Party is serving with their DNC. Like it, it fits perfectly uh, thematically. So I highly recommend everyone to go read that piece. It's very long, very good. Um, he does a lot of analysis and data and it's it's great. So before we get to our commentaries, uh, Nando, you have an announcement. I do. You know, this show, it's brought to you by Verso Books. And uh, the great people at Verso Books have just launched the Verso Book Club. Now you can get every new ebook they publish each month, as well as one or more new books in the mail if you choose a print subscription. All Verso Club Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. And to celebrate their 50th anniversary and the launch of the book club, each member tier is 50% off for the first three months. The comrade tier, which sounds like a good tier, is now $20. And if you join in August, you'll get Sensoria, Thinkers for the 21st Century by Mackenzie Wark, Revolutionary Feminisms, Conversations on Collective Action and Radical Thought, edited by Brenna Bandar and Rafif Ziada, and Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder by the great Christian Parenti, and a new edition of Nancy Fraser's Fortunes of Feminisms. So everyone, check out Verso Books, get in the book club, buy their books, they're all great. So yeah, Anna, time for your commentary. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So... California is in the middle of its fire season. To be quite honest with you, fires have been so frequent and so extreme that it feels like every day of the month, every month of the year uh, is fire season. But things are particularly bad right now. And when you think about what the pandemic has done, it further compounds the problem and confronts us with more of the uh, systemic issues we have, not just in the state of California, but in the country in regard to how we handle catastrophes, crises, and how we fund certain things. So according to recent reports, Cal Fire is having a difficult time fighting all the various fires throughout the state because there is a shortage of firefighters. But when I say there's a shortage of firefighters, I'm not talking about unionized, well-paid firefighters who, uh, you know, are literally hired and paid to do what they should be doing. I'm talking about the prisoners, actual people who have been incarcerated that this state relies on in order to fight fires. The pandemic has gotten so bad that prisons have gone into lockdown. And as a result, the prisoners that Cal Fire relies on are unable to join the ranks to fight these fires. And let me be clear, they fight the fires on the front lines, doing essentially the most dangerous job for virtually no pay. So um, according to the Sacramento Bee, 
State prison officials announced they had placed 12 of the state's 43 inmate fire camps on lockdown due to a massive outbreak at a Northern California prison in Lassen County that serves as the training center for fire crews. Until the lockdown lifts, only 30 of the state's 77 inmate crews are available to fight a wildfire in the North State, prison officials said. I mean, you could just hire enough firefighters and not rely on (laughs) prison labor to do it. But let me give you some more information. So there are about 2,200 certified inmate firefighters who do the job across the state. They're stationed at the minimum security fire camps in 27 counties. Any loss of the crews to a COVID-19 outbreak pretends a major challenge to the state's firefighting workforce as California's blast furnace summer and fall fire season get underway. And by the way, these inmates do typically work in the more dangerous, um, you know, component of firefighting. Uh, They are on the front lines. Uh, Inmates typically do the critically important and dangerous job of using chainsaws and hand tools to cut fire lines around properties and neighborhoods during wildfires. Democracy Now! actually did a wonderful piece on this a few years ago and spoke to um, some high-level officials within CAL FIRE. And they're pretty transparent about how they risk the lives of these prisoners while they get virtually no pay. California saves up to $100 million a year by using prison labor to fight its biggest environmental problem. Cal Fire reports two prisoner firefighters were injured during Northern California's wildfire in the first 24 hours. Prisoner firefighters are more than four times as likely to be injured than other firefighters. This, according to Time magazine, which reports that more than a thousand prisoner firefighters required hospital care between June 2013 and August 2018. How important are these fire camps of incarcerated uh, people to fighting fires in in California? The Emmy firefighters are the backbone of Cal Fire. They are do all. They get the toughest assignment there is, out there. What's the toughest assignment? <laughs> Whatever they're asked to do. So usually it's cutting line where a dozer can't go. Mm. So they get the toughest assignments um, in the worst conditions, 110 degrees in the middle of the sun, carrying wearing two layers of clothing, carrying 40 pounds of gear, mm. and then they have to carry all their food and water for a 24-hour shift, mm. and then swing a tool the whole time. And you're saying they do the toughest jobs? They get the toughest assignment service. How much do they get paid? A dollar an hour. So the state is really dependent on these prisoner firefighters? Definitely, yes. Make, they save a lot of money for the state. And guess what? Once they serve their prison term and they're just ordinary free civilians... The fire department has no interest in hiring them. In fact, I know from personal experience because my partner went through the hiring process uh, to try to become a firefighter and the background check process is so extreme. You have officials showing up to whatever building you live in or whichever neighborhood you live in to talk to your neighbors to make sure you're uh, a decent human being. Uh, They go through your financial records. They go through a, a criminal background check, of course. Everything you could possibly imagine, um, no, no stone goes unturned. And so while these prisoners are totally okay to fight these fires on the front lines as their prisoners who virtually do not get paid, 
or get paid very little, they're not good enough for Cal Fire once they're free and able to work for a decent living. So just keep that in mind. And so I also want to talk a little bit about or get into more detail about how little they really do get paid. Um, So Democracy Now! also spoke to one of the prisoners uh, who serves as a firefighter and uh, get a load of what he had to say about the compensation for what he does. How much money do you make? A dollar hour. When you're fighting the fire? Yes. When you're fighting the fire, a dollar hour. So how, for example, last night, were you, how long were you fighting the fire? Probably 20-something hours. So we probably made $20, $22, $24. What do you think of that? Well, I don't think, I think we should make, of course I would say I would, anybody that got a job, you, you would think you should make more. I always thought we was, I thought we was getting $2 until I came to fire camp. I mean... How do you how do you hear a conversation like that and not feel absolutely infuriated that their lives are not valued, that they're just exploited this way? And then you also have to consider the fact that there are so many people living in poverty in California. These are jobs that should be done by people who are compensated fairly, who have benefits, who have health insurance, who get uh, the just the basic essentials to even survive in a state as expensive as California is. But instead, to, to save money, we're relying on prisoners who are put in the most dangerous situations to fight these fires because they get paid very little or nothing at all. And so now I want to talk about why that is. Why is it that California, which has the fifth largest economy, not just in this country, in the world. Why are we relying on prisoners in order to save money to fight these fires? Well, you really have to look back at the history of California and some of the um, unsavory actors who passed propositions, ballot initiatives that have really dismantled this state, dismantled all of the public programs that made this state fantastic in the earlier years. So let's go ahead and travel back to 1978 when an unsavory character pushed for and successfully succeeded in passing Proposition 13. Good evening. Here in California in the primary tomorrow, people have the rare and no doubt pleasing opportunity to vote their taxes down. It was a revolution led by retired businessman and anti-tax crusader Howard Jarvis. We have a new revolution against the arrogant politicians and insensitive bureaucrats whose philosophy of tax, 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 spend, 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 elect and elect and elect is bankrupting we, the American people, and the time has come to put a stop. The People's Initiative to Limit Property Taxation, or Prop 13, passed with two-thirds of the vote and cut property taxes in half. It also locked in all property assessments at 1% of purchase price and limited yearly increases. I voted for Proposition 13 because I believe the taxpayers have just got to tell the government a message that we're mad as hell and we're not going to take anymore. Now... Prop 13 uh, really did hurt 
uh, various government programs in the state of California. For instance, because tax revenue plummeted, uh, California's public schools actually lost one third of their budget. So uh, believe it or not, LAUSD used to be one of the top public school uh, systems in the country. And now it's among the worst. And it's because of the fact that it's been so severely defunded through Prop 13 and its tax cuts on property taxes specifically. Now, various state services and agencies had to get bailed out over and over and over again as a result of this loss in tax revenue. And by the way, let me be clear, in order to reverse Prop 13, Or more importantly, in order to ever increase taxes in the state of California, you need two thirds of lawmakers in the state to agree to raise taxes, which is nearly impossible. And what ends up happening? Well, when you cut taxes on people who tend to have the means to buy a home, for instance, well, the state needs to raise revenue in other ways. And the way that they do that is through regressive taxation. So um, California is one of the states that has uh, the highest uh, sales tax, for instance. And that's because, again, the state is relying on regressive taxation. So wealthy people uh, can get these massive tax cuts. So with that said, um, let's also talk about uh, this next video where they get into some of the details of just how much this hurt the state of California. Take a look. The state bailout after Prop 13 was not just for schools. It was also extended to counties and cities so they could pay for firefighters, police services, and libraries. According to research published by the Public Policy Institute of California, before Prop 13, counties relied on property taxes for about a third of their revenue. Two decades later, in 1998, it was down to just over a tenth. So those are some pretty damning numbers. And uh, decades later, we're still dealing with the ramifications of this proposition. Uh, We have not reversed uh, this proposition. We have not raised taxes in a way uh, that ensures that the wealthiest people in the state, I mean, think about it, Silicon Valley is in California. We have not raised taxes in a way where the wealthiest people in the state uh, pay their fair share. And the general public really does suffer as a result of that, whether it's our public schools, whether it's our, uh, you know, firefighting uh, agencies, Cal Fire and various fire departments throughout the state. Um, And one of the worst things about this is that it encourages not just the exploitation of prison labor, but it also pushes for tough on crime policies to ensure that the state has a steady flow of prisoners to exploit. So, for instance, uh, recently California started to, you know, lessen the number of people in its prison system. And there have been some consequences to Cal Fire. Let me get to those numbers. Typically, um, 90 inmate fire crews are available to fight fires in Northern California, but there were just 77 assigned to the region this year. And that was before the pandemic hit. Now, due to the lockdown at the 12 fire camps, only 30 inmate crews are available in Northern California to respond to a wildfire as of June 30th. So before the pandemic, there was already a shortage of prisoners to exploit. And then the pandemic hit, lockdowns began, and the situation was far worse for Cal Fire. And of course... 
by extension of that, far worse for the vast majority of people in California who are now suffering from these fires that the state of California does not have the resources to fight against effectively. And so, again, this creates an incentive to push for and pass tough on crime legislation. And as Mike Hampton, who's a union official, uh, perfectly stated, the whole purpose of the program is to fight fires and save the state money. So that's the situation we're dealing with, Nando, in the state of California. I mean, I, I just love the way that this state is constantly painted as like some yeah. progressive utopia when you have 60,000 homeless people on the streets in Los Angeles alone, when you have 10 states now sending backups to Cal Fire because we don't have the resources, we don't have the manpower to fight these fires. I mean, it is, this is, this is a utopia, but certainly for neoliberalism. It is not a utopia for uh, the leftist policies that we desperately need, not just in this state, but in this country. Yeah, you're right. This is, it really goes to show that vote blue, no matter who, might turn your state into a neoliberal hellscape. I mean, not just the the you know the the, the collapse in, in tax base in tax revenue, um, creating the situation where the where we need to basically have fire slaves, but you're starting to see a huge increase in private fire uh, fighters. You know, wealthy people in like Malibu or you know, some kind of exposed neighborhood with, with a lot of rich people will will get together and hire private firefighters just for them, obviously, like not for other people, right? So it, I mean, it, Kim Kardashian did that. That was like a huge course. story. I believe it was last year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, on some level, you, you can't really blame them. I mean, it's, 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 it's all that confluence of neoliberalism, which is climate change increases the... Uh, the, the amount of fires that, that there are, I mean, because it's, it's getting hotter, it's, uh, you know, the, the rain patterns are, are disrupted and, and it like creates the underbrush, which is like a tinderbox in, in, in this time of year. Um, and so the fires are bigger and bigger and badder than ever. We have fewer firefighters. We're employing prison slaves while the rich are getting like premium, high quality private fire departments that are shut off for the rest of the population. So it's it really is like the perfect confluence of everything that is wrong with neoliberalism. I mean, it's 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 really it's really bleak. Yeah, and also to further compound the problem, um, we have so many people who are homeless and living yeah. on the streets, and so. Uh, there are these fires that get started all throughout. I know at least all throughout LA County because they're attempting to cook food, whatever yeah. it is that they're doing. Right. And so we have just this incredibly dangerous cocktail of disaster in, in, in the state. And it's not just about California. You know, I'm not just trying to um, complain about what we're experiencing in this particular state. It's the ideology behind all these failed policies that we're experiencing in this state and across the nation. Yeah. And so, you know, when we have these conversations about, oh, Biden's so fantastic because he's not a monster like Donald Trump. OK, great. But we have a plethora of those types of politicians in a state like California. And I would argue that a politician who turns the other way and justifies using prison labor to fight these fires is pretty freaking terrible and yeah. can be considered a monster. Yeah. Um, so we need to demand more from our politicians. Simply being a decent human being, or at least putting a decent human being facade 
um, you know, to some pretty terrible ideology isn't enough um, to get us to where we need to go. No, absolutely. I mean, I think there was a line in Biden's speech where he's like, you know, I'll understand your problems or something like that. And it's like, great. You know, like, what are you going to do about them? Come on, man. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> yeah. What's that no. about, Jack? <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, firefighters are cool. Yeah. Firefighters are cool, man. Yeah. Um, but you have some... Uh, some grievances to air uh, regarding California as well. So go ahead. Yes, absolutely. No, it's it's another uh, another story out of California because I know that if everyone's watching this show, they were probably spending the entire week watching the DNC around the clock, so they may have missed it. Uh, but it's an important story coming out of California, and it has to do with Uber and Lyft. That's right. Yeah, as the fires rage across the Golden State, Uber and Lyft have found themselves in a bit of hot water. Hi, Tyler. A California judge has rejected Uber and Lyft's requests for longer stay of that preliminary injunction we reported on at the start of the week. The injunction that forces the ride-sharing companies to treat their drivers as employees. So that means that within just a week now, the ride-sharing companies um, either have to turn their drivers who are currently independent contractors into full employees with the benefits and protections that go along with that or risk further legal actions against them. That's right. Uber and Lyft drivers, the people you depend on to get home after you get blackout drunk at the bar, are not actually employees of Uber and Lyft. They are something called independent contractors. And that little phrase, independent contractors, is at the core of these apps' innovative strategy. Because that's the thing with these apps like Uber and Lyft. It's not that they came up with some amazing new technological innovation that disrupted the taxi industry their disruptive innovation comes from the fact that they basically just ignore labor laws, labor laws that protect workers like me and you. And in a rare rebuke against corporate power, a superior court judge ordered Uber and Lyft to reclassify their drivers to regular employees so that they would be subject to regular labor laws and entitled to things like benefits. Well, Uber and Lyft were not too happy with that decision. Here's what Uber CEO Dara Kurwashahai, I don't know how to say it, had to say. So we think we comply by the laws, but if the judge and the court finds that we're not and uh, they don't give us a stay to get to November, then we'll have to essentially shut down Uber until November when the voters decide. It would be really unfortunate um, at a historical time of unemployment in California. It would put uh, vast swaths of our drivers out of work uh, without the opportunity to earn. Yeah, he's saying that if a judge really did force them to reclassify their drivers, they would shut down entirely in California. And this, as he says, would be very unfortunate, given that tens of thousands of people depend on these driveshare apps for their livelihood. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what is known as a capital strike. Now, we know what a labor strike is, right? It's when workers of a particular firm or an industry refuse to work, thereby shutting down production and forcing the owners to give in to their demands lest they lose out on their profits. Well, a capital strike is the exact inverse of that. Here, the owners of the firm are purposefully shutting down production to put pressure on workers and the government to give in to their demands. In this case, the right to keep their drivers in these precarious gig jobs rather than give them basic protections that every worker deserves. And the sad thing is, it worked. It's early this morning, we got the news. 
from the company Lyft that they were going to halt operations here in the Golden State completely. But that all came to an end, boy, about an hour ago, close to a little bit after noontime. And the reason for that, a California appeals court granted what's called an emergency stay to both Uber and to Lyft. And essentially what that does is it pauses a ruling that requires both companies to reclassify their drivers as employees tomorrow. Yep. At the 11th hour, a court granted an extension, leaving the fight for another day. In theory, Uber have till October 13th to come up with a plan. But really, this fight is going to end up coming down to the voters of the great state of California. This November, Proposition 22, Prop 22, is on the ballot. It basically would allow Uber and Lyft to be exempt from the law that said they need to classify their drivers as employees. Companies like Uber and Lyft have already spent $100 million to get Prop 22 passed. Meanwhile, union-backed drivers groups only have $865,000 to oppose it. So $100 million versus $865,000. And it's hard to overstate just how important this is. Technology has allowed companies to get creative in how they actually get people to provide them with labor. These new gig jobs are quickly becoming the new normal in America. There's a study that said, quote, survey research conducted by economists Lawrence Katz of Harvard University and Alan Kruger of Princeton University show that from 2005 to 2015, the proportion of American workers engaged in what they refer to as alternative work jumped from 10.7% to 15.8%. Alternative work is characterized by being temporary or unsteady such as work as an independent contractor or through a temporary help agency. Quote, they keep going. We find that 94% of net job growth in the past decade was in the alternative work category, said Kruger, and over 60% was due to the rise of independent contractors, freelancers, and contract company workers. In other words, nearly all of the 10 million jobs created between 2005 and 2015 were not traditional 9 to 5 employment. And this is what Uber and Lyft are taking advantage of. It is central to their entire model. California's ruling represents an existential threat to them. And, you know, the investor class is actually quite open about that. Let's bring in more reaction now. I'm bringing in Loop Ventures founder Gene Munster, who's been listening to our dialogue. And Gene, we remind our viewers that Uber's original name was Uber Taxi. I mean, ultimately, they're, they're talking about maybe going back to a taxi-style model if that California law stuck, at least in that state. Is that a business worth $55 billion? No. Both of these companies, Brian, are in a tight spot. And yes, there was a reprieve today. This topic is not over, obviously, with this vote coming November 3rd and California's uh, some of their influence that they can have on other states. And Kind of you put all this together and think about if these changes to employees across the country call it a 15% increase, which is effectively their profit margins. And I, I want to do want to caution the voters of California and also uh, some of the lawmakers. I I'm, I'm, uh, do not want to uh, politicize any of this, but uh, one aspect, what would the drivers want? Yeah, that investor guy just straight up said it. If the California law comes into effect... Uber simply would cease to be a business worth $55 billion. But he did fire a warning to the voters of California. What would Uber drivers themselves want? They were driving around the area that I just showed you. They were driving through the loop as well, letting folks know that they want to be considered employees. So we've done our best this morning and all throughout this afternoon to speak to some of those drivers. Here's what they told us. 
you know, all, all we are asking and requesting is just, a, you know, for them to recognize the $15 minimum wage so that we won't be a low wage, more than what it is already, you know, in the middle class. Oh, well, we're here to protest, you know, uh, Uber and Lyft pulling out of California, just completely abandoning their drivers. We're out here to show that, you know, drivers support other drivers, and that's what we're doing out here today. We're handing out PPE, and we're demonstrating that when drivers organize, we can get accomplished great things. Yeah, a study in 2018 found that the average Uber driver made about $8.55 an hour, with a majority making below minimum wage, and some even losing money after you factor in things like gas and vehicle maintenance. And this is nothing new. Back when I was at Fusion, we covered Uber a lot. And here is one report from way back in 2016. According to Uber, more than 400,000 drivers use the app in the U.S. every month, and that's not counting their competition. But how often are we thinking about the person in the front seat? Uber drivers like Abraham. I'm angry. I'm sad. We're making probably five to six dollars an hour, probably. I can be sixty billion dollar company. Don't take care of the people who are making you get. We make you rich. You make us homeless. So yeah, while Uber investors and management team get rich, their drivers get paid starvation wages. Also, uh, side note, uh, the federal prosecutors have charged Uber's former chief security officer with covering up a massive 2016 data breach by arranging a $100,000 payoff to the hackers responsible for the attack. The personal data of 57 million Uber passengers and drivers was stolen in the hack. So yeah, Uber is no good. And the really, really crazy thing is that Uber's business model doesn't even work. I mean, they lose billions of dollars a year. Last year, they somehow managed to lose $5 billion in a single quarter. And what this means is that those cheap prices you get when you tap for an Uber on your phone are being artificially sustained by things like venture capital. Their goal is to basically undercut the existing taxi drivers. And once they push them out completely out of the picture... They'll simply raise the prices on consumers to ensure profitability, or they'll just eliminate the need for drivers altogether. So yeah, Uber sucks. But wait, there is a Democratic National Convention this week. You would think that the country's left-of-center party would have something to say about an issue that is at the heart of what it means to be a worker in this country. I suppose it's not very encouraging that the pres- uh, President Obama's chief political advisor, David Pluff, became a lobbyist for Uber, and then got dinged with a $90,000 fine for illegal lobbying, whatever that means. So yeah, breaking news. The Democratic Party won't save us, but the voters of California could if they managed to hold the line against Uber and Lyft's assault on basic governance. And hey, at least I have to hand it to the Uber CEO for his honesty. On a recent podcast episode, he said, quote, I do think we have the system that's optimized. It's called capitalism, Kozro Washai said. It's not called laborism. It's not called socialism. It's capitalism. And it's a system that's built to maximize shareholder value and capital. And yeah, you have to admire that kind of chutzpah from the CEO of a company that loses billions of dollars a year. But the thing is, he's right. The system is called capitalism, and it is a system that is built to maximize shareholder value and capital. Maybe it's time to change that. Nando, that was such a great um, segment. And, you know, what it reminds me of is 
how you can't regulate your way out of the tragic outcomes of, of a capitalistic system, right? Because regardless of what type of regulation gets passed, there's either some loophole to take advantage of, or uh, we live in a society that has literally legalized bribery. Like, bribery is legalized. Yeah. So Uber can do what it wants, any corporation with the means uh, to engage in this legalized uh, corruption can do it. And, and this is what we see over and over and over again. And so, and, and yeah, I mean, like the, the incredible transparency by Silicon Valley CEOs blows my mind. Uh, you know, it reminds me of the segment that I did a few weeks ago about how our data gets uh, harvested and sold. And Google's response to the criticism was, well, I mean, if you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah. It, it, they just say it publicly, yeah. right to your face. And what the gig economy does is, of course, it's absolutely disastrous for people who have no choice but to take these jobs uh, in the gig economy. But for the people who are lucky enough to not have to work in the gig economy for now, you know, you feel this unbelievable amount of pressure to be grateful for yeah. your work environment, even though you're miserable. So everyone ends up miserable. Yeah. You know, if you have a normal nine to five job, you're told, be grateful. L look at how terrible it is out there for these gig economy workers. And then if you're a gig economy worker, yeah, it's pretty terrible. You don't have benefits. You don't have job security. You don't have stability. And, and you know, in California, we're talking about one of the most expensive states to live in. So, yeah, I, I hope that the voters in California vote the right way. But one of the biggest issues with ballot initiatives is how unbelievably difficult it is to navigate the propaganda yeah. and the false advertising. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's I mean, and as, you, as I said, like they're, they're spending a lot of money to get this through. I mean, this is. You know, this is do or die for them. Really, it's 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 it's. I can't overstate how important it is. And this, it's it's what's in a way helpful about this story is that it's a very clear example of what I was talking about of, of a capital strike, which cuts at the core of why ultimately under capitalism, no matter how, even if like you know you're in Swedish social democracy or whatever, you know ultimately. The power of the firms to withhold investment will paralyze the system, and will, that's why they will ultimately always have the last word. I mean, this is something that Bhaskar Sunkara, uh, founder of Jacobin, talks about a lot when he talks about social democracy in his book and and, and and in his talks. Is that like ultimately, until you like go all the way, you know, to to a different kind of system, um, even in a government that's sort of well functioning and um, you know has a big robust welfare state. The firms ultimately have the, f the final word because they can do a capital strike. And this was just like a very clear example, a very kind of, you know, with a clear uh, timetable and, uh, and, and of a company that everyone kind of knows um, engaging in it. So that's why I found this story to be almost helpful to understand how the system works. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, uh, one of the other ways our system is broken is our healthcare model. Um, and we have a commodified healthcare system uh, that leads to a lot of pain and suffering in this country. We're definitely experiencing it right now in the middle of this pandemic. And here to kind of break down uh, what's happening is Mark Dudzik. Mark Dudzik is the national organizer and chairman of the United States Labor Party, as well as a labor activist. He's also the national coordinator for the labor campaign for single payer, which advocates for a single payer healthcare system. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. I just want to give you a quick correction. Um, we kind of put the Labor Party on the shelf about 13 years ago, so I uh, can't really say that I'm the current national organizer of the Labor Party. <laughs> okay, sorry. I got an outdated uh, biography for you. Um, but, you know, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk to us today um, about Medicare for All and what we can do uh, moving forward strategically in order to accomplish it. Um, I'll start off with my first question. You know, in a piece that you wrote uh, for Jacobin, you know, you write about the Democratic Party's platform and how it rejected a top priority for progressives, which is Medicare for all. You are you write that the draft Democratic platform fails to rise to this historic moment. The draft platform was overwhelmingly approved by the platform committee, which rejected an amendment to add Medicare for all. All four national union presidents on the platform committee, including the presidents of three unions that had endorsed Medicare for all, um, voted against the amendment. You also write that it's important for the future strategic orientation of Medicare for all movement, of the Medicare for all movement, to reflect on why it's so hard to win even a symbolic concession on the issue from the Democratic establishment. So my question to you, Mark, is... Why is it that the Democratic Party is essentially able to give the middle finger to a single payer health care system at a time when the majority of Americans overall, I believe it's about 69 percent of Americans um, in a, a new poll, are in favor of a single payer health care system? Why is it that they feel emboldened enough to uh, ignore a policy that the majority of Americans are in favor of? Well, I mean, the, I guess the short answer is that the Democratic Party was captured by neoliberalism sometime around 35 or 40 years ago, um, that there's been a number of insurgencies within the Democratic Party to try to uh, uh, move it in a more social democratic uh, direction. Um, and we lost the latest, the latest battle to do so. Um, and that Medicare for all is really the kind of the wedge issue uh, between these two these two programs. And that's, I think, why they fight so hard. They fought really hard in 2016 uh, on the platform committee. Um, and if you remember, uh, the Democratic candidate in 2016 went around the country saying we will never, ever have Medicare for all. It's just uh, it's just a bridge too far. It will never, ever happen. Um, and, you know, again, in 2020, this was the issue that they chose to to draw the line on. And, it's a, you know, it has both symbolic and practical uh, um, impact. This was a message to the the funders and uh, uh, the neoliberal supporters of the Democratic Party that nothing fundamental will change uh, under a, Bi a Biden administration. And what does the what does the platform talk about in terms of health care? Like, does it have anything in there that would improve health care in the United States? Yeah, it, you know, it's a 10 page platform and there, there are a bunch of 
good ideas about how to improve healthcare, expanding rural and urban um, healthcare clinics, uh, uh, making sure that there's full coverage for all aspects of reproductive healthcare, including access to abortion, uh, LGBTQ healthcare, fully funding the Indian uh, health service, which is desperately underfunded. Um, you know, there, there's uh, you know uh, uh, a number of proposals there. Uh, it also has a fairly um, good proposal on how to kind of rein in big pharma with uh, negotiating authority with some some teeth in it. Um, but you know, it's it fundamentally relies on this idea that you can uh, transform this healthcare system by using uh, a public option. Um, to provide universal access to health care. And uh, that's just, uh, it's just a failed idea. It's not going to work. So let's talk about the public option, um, because it was sold to the American people as a way of giving people more choices, right? Uh, Medicare for all is awful because people wouldn't have a choice. Uh, now, of course, there was a lot of... Uh, deception there, a lot of um, anti-Medicare for all propaganda. Um, I think that the majority of Americans who were just laid off because of the pandemic, tens of millions of them uh, now know that they have no choice <laughs> because their health insurance is tied to their employer. But what would the public option do and why do you feel that it is inadequate? Well, first of all, it treats healthcare, continues to treat healthcare as it, if it was a commodity rather than as a public good. Um, and that's really fundamental to how you view healthcare and how you should view healthcare policy. If you have commodified healthcare and, you know, people are consuming it as consumers and, and choosing products, competing products, then you have this crazy system that we have that's based on, you know, profit taking um, and it's incredibly inefficient um, and it's in, it generates inequality at all levels of the system. Um, so it, it just it doesn't work to provide health care to everyone. Uh, you know, we believe that, you know, public health care system, publicly financed uh, health care system uni uh, with universal access uh, you know, really is the only way to really improve the choice that people have for health care, that they can then choose uh, their own health care providers and choose whatever uh, services that they feel that they need uh, to get health care. The current system actually restricts people's choice uh, uh, to health care by forcing them to choose a health care, narrow health care plan. So it just doesn't work. The public option just adds another layer of complexity to the system. Uh, doesn't bend the cost curve. Uh, in fact, if the, you're really serious about universal affordable coverage, uh, it's going to radically increase the cost of the system. And we don't have to do that. We can save 20 to 30 percent uh, of the current cost with better benefits uh, and cover more people uh, from the cradle to the grave in a Medicare for all system. This is not rocket science. Everybody, uh, every other industrialized country in the world has figured this out. So I, I also have uh, an issue with trusting the Democratic establishment in regard to even fighting for a public option. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, now, assuming that it's something that they genuinely want, do you really see the Biden administration fighting for a public option to improve the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, well, you know, the, again, this is a, the, the, 
the problem that we constantly encounter in the political sphere is we start out by bargaining against ourselves. There's this this idea that okay, well, you know, not, nobody, we're not going to be able to win single payer, so let's ask for this, and maybe we can get that. And uh, you know, by the time you do that, you you know, you empower the other side to just crush you. So you know, by starting out with your uh, you know what you think you can get, you're going to end up getting next to nothing. And that's, you know, time and time again, um, uh, the Democratic Party and, uh, you know, uh, the supporters within the labor movement who hitch their wagon to the Democratic Party. You know, this is this is a, the failed strategy that uh, we, we constantly get trapped in. We wouldn't do that at the bargaining table. I don't understand why we do it when we do our politics. Uh, so already, you know, I've been hearing rumors that, uh, you know, there's been signaling that the public option is negotiable and, you know, might go away if we win something else. Uh, so already it's, a you know, it's being further bargained down. And, uh, you know, that was the the uh, experience in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it was the experience in the uh, mid-1990s with the Clinton health care plan. Uh, we just, history just keeps repeating itself. And as leftists, we we understand that the labor movement is central to any sort of meaningful reform of the system. Um, but I'm, re- I'm remembering uh, in the days before the Nevada caucus, where the leadership of the Nevada Culinary Union um, really dinged Bernie um, for Medicare for All, saying that it would threaten their like Union One healthcare plans. Like, what do you say to what do you say about about that? Yeah, well, I, look, I think we're in this moment when, you know, the system is in such a uh, an advanced stage of crisis that um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to sort of cling to the uh, the the benefits of the old system. And so I mean, the Nevada caucuses were really um, an eye opener, I think, for the labor movement, um, the, you know, the, the hotel workers union, casino workers union in Nevada the culinary, as they call it, you know, is a damn good union. It's fought hard, hard battles um, to, you know, build a powerful contract for um, marginalized workers who would be, you know, earning poverty level level wages, if not for the fights that the, that union has taken up time and time again over uh, a couple of generations now. So it's a good union with a very active um, and supportive membership. Um, and they came in hard saying, you know, you're going to lose this plan that took us decades to build. It's a great health care plan. Um, and yet when they counted the votes, um, the uh, casino workers, the members of the culinary uh, voted for Bernie Sanders uh, in, in the majority. And they voted for Bernie because he supported Medicare for all. And these workers, and I think it's because that union has done such a good job organizing and mobilizing them, these workers understand that they're not just union members at a particular casino, but they're part of a working class and that um, they need to fight for health care for the entire working class, for their their family and their neighbors and uh um, other workers in their city, uh, and they understand also how precarious that their health care benefits are. And in fact, you know, almost immediately after uh, the caucuses in Nevada, you know, the whole country shut down. Ninety percent of uh, 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 hospitality workers have been laid off. 
um, and the healthcare plans that uh, the union has fought so hard to establish are now in crisis and, you know, are probably uh, going to have to start cutting, cutting benefits and cutting people off who've been laid off now for several months. Mark, in, in a minute, I want to get to um, what we can do moving forward to strategically accomplish a single-payer healthcare system. But one of the things that I'm so confused about is why in this moment we don't have progressive lawmakers who have said they're supportive of Medicare for all, really taking advantage of the uniquely awful situation we're in with this pandemic to fight and push for Medicare for all. I, I feel like there's really been silence on, on this policy ever since uh, Biden became the presumptive Democratic nominee. And so, you know, obviously I'm asking you to speculate a, a bit here, but why do you think that is? And uh, do you think that this is, uh, you know, a, a smart strategic move considering Trump's in office and we're trying to get him out? Or do you think that this is really a missed opportunity? Uh you know, I, I I would say first of all that they're not that they've not been completely silenced. There was an effort to uh, uh, vote against the Democratic program for, for platform precisely around this issue of Medicare for all, and um, people like Ro Khanna, you know, publicly said that they were going to vote against the program. Um, now they never actually announced the final vote count on that, but you know, it's my understanding that seven to eight hundred. Uh, delegates to the Democratic Convention probably voted against the program because of their uh, its exclusion of Medicare for all as a path forward. Um, so, you know, there still is a subdued uh, movement there. Um, but, you know, look, uh, you know, Trump happened and, you know, we're in this moment of real, you know, kind of existential crisis here. Um, and, uh, you know, the calculation of Many of these politicians has been that, you know, we've just got to, you know, step aside and uh, work to elect Biden and defeat Trump. And so, uh, you know, I wish people understood ways to walk and chew gum at the same time to, you Mm -hmm. know, support the defeat of Trump, worked for his defeat, but also continue to fight for Medicare for all. Um, But that, you know, is not you know, the strong point of the sort of progressive side of the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, that's that's the reality until we have, you know, a, a real working class political party in this country. Um, you know, we have the the, the political uh, field of play is very limited. And, you know, particularly in these do or die electoral moments. Well, uh, to expand on that, you know, now that uh, Bernie's uh, campaign has ended and it, it just it feels very bleak, um, what's what's the strategy going forward? I mean, you said like, the, as you say, that the, it seems like right now the political parameters have been very limited. How do we expand them? How do we get more people involved in the labor movement? How do we expand the power of unions? Like what's what's the what comes next? Yeah, well, you have to remember that this an election comes and election goes. Um, and, you know, they kind of can, can be seen as a way to assess um, the re- respective strength of various social movements and uh, other phenomena, but they don't themselves necessarily build uh, 
build the power that we need to make the changes uh, that are necessary. And so, you know, this is a moment when we ought to really be thinking about what we need to do to build power, to engage, to prepare for the, uh, the fights going forward. Um, you know, my, my personal opinion is we've got to, we've got to get rid of Trump. Uh, and the only pathway forward from that moves through the election of a, a Biden administration. Um, I think we can try to engage, uh, as much as we can in electing, um, you know, strong Medicare for all supporters to Congress and other political positions. And we can use that uh, election campaign to do that. And the other thing I think that's really uh, people can be very responsive to is linking this fight to the crisis that we're all in right now. Uh, You know, a million workers a week are losing their jobs and will continue to lose their jobs. Those who have lost their jobs a month or two ago are beginning to lose their health care. You know, we need to incorporate a really robust emergency health care benefit for people to make our way through this economic crisis and make our way to the other end of this pandemic. Um, And, you know, that should be based on a, a public goods model, a social insurance model like Medicare for All. Uh, there's a bill pending in both houses called the Healthcare Emergency Guarantee Act. Uh, Sanders is a principal sponsor in the Senate, Jayapal in the House. Uh, you know, this is a bill we ought to be talking about and talking to uh, our congressional representatives about. You know, the, the Senate went home without doing any emergency relief extension for uh, working people. We're all going to be back in town in a couple of weeks, and the emergency is going to continue to play out. People are getting desperate, uh, and that's where I think that's where the fight is uh, moving into the election. Well, Mark, don't worry. Um, Democrats uh, are working hard to expand COBRA, uh, unaffordable health care, if people have been laid off. Um, I mean, it's just, it is devastating to, to see these two parties and see just the lack of representation for the best interests uh, of Americans for their own electorate. And um, I, I want to leave the interview with uh, a powerful part in your piece, uh, which again was published in Jacobin. You write, labor must be central to this movement. And part of our challenge is to work to extract union officials from their instrumental relationships with the Democratic Party. Likewise, The movements for racial justice must contend with a black political and managerial class that has made its own peace with neoliberalism. Any final thoughts before we go? Well, I think I said it all in that uh, in that summary there. I think that's really our challenge going forward. That's the labor campaign really works to move the labor movement into this fight. Um, And, you know, I have to say, I think that the conditions have changed so much that, um, you know, once this election is over, because it really taints how people view this, um, you know, we can really move forward. There was a big fight, for example, at the uh, uh, American Federation of Teachers Convention last month about whether the union should hitch its uh, horses to the Medicare for All fight or have a more generic fight. And the only real argument against going all out for Medicare for all that uh, was made was that it would be out of sync with the Biden campaign um, and, you know, could perhaps provide succor to the Trump campaign. And so, you know, when that is over, there's no other reason left to do nothing other than fight for Medicare for all. All right, Mark, again, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.
All right. Man, I, I, I'm always so impressed with people who have dedicated their lives to fighting for, you know, single payer yeah. health care, fighting for labor, especially in a country where it feels like an endless fight where you get nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry to I, sorry I, to make such a depressing comment no. about it, but you know, I, I just have endless respect for people like Mark. Yeah, I love I love the old timers, you know, the people who like Bernie, Mark, Adolf Reed, the people who had to wander through the wilderness of the nineteen eighties and nineties, early two thousands when there where the left was like less than nothing. I mean, right now it's not like we're powerful, but there's things like. Jacobin and the show that, that that stuff did not exist back then. So the people who kind of d- maintained the torch, so to speak, in that long march through the desert, um, I always appreciate hearing from. Definitely. And, you know, one thing that Michael Brooks would talk about all the time was the um, importance of building strong progressive institutions. Right. Mm-hmm. And media is a big part of that. So um, I'm so happy that the Jacobin Jacobins of the world exist um, and we're hearing ideas that otherwise would never be heard in a country like the United States with its yeah. mainstream media. All right. So with that said, why don't we move on to our, f- I guess, somewhat fun salt segment? Yeah. Uh, the only reason I would say it's fun is because it gives me an opportunity to dunk on probably my least favorite Democratic politician, Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I can't stand Nancy Pelosi. Like, out of every establishment, corporatist Democrat, she is the worst, The, the just, like, completely out of touch with the average American and I, every time I hear her speak, I just, anyway, um, let me, that's my bias. Okay. I'm being clear about my bias here. Yeah. Um, but let me go ahead and, um, give you guys the details of like the latest annoying thing that Nancy Pelosi did. So Nancy Pelosi claimed that she was very much against democratic primary challengers to democratic incumbents. Uh, that's why she was so salty toward members of the squad, Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar just hated what they did because, you know, it supposedly jeopardizes uh, a Democratic seat in the House. Well, now, you know, she made a curious decision in endorsing a Democratic challenger, primary challenger in the Senate to Senator Ed Marquis, of course, the Democratic incumbent. And uh, when there was backlash, she decided to defend her decision to endorse Joe Kennedy III. Now, Pelosi said that Markey's campaign had crossed a hallowed line by running a negative (laughs) campaign against the Kennedy dynasty. Let's hear what she had to say. And I'm a big supporter of people in the House. Uh, You can ask my colleagues. My loyalty is to them. When Joe Kennedy came to the Congress, he brought with him a great, Uh, commitment to America's working families, the courage to always act upon it, and the humility to always learn. In the 2018 election, he recognized that in others and traveled the country to help us win the House. That's why so many of our freshman members are endorsing him as well, and so many of our other members as well. I wasn't too happy with some of the assault that I saw made on the Kennedy family, and I thought, Joe didn't ask me to endorse him but I felt an imperative uh, to do so. 
I felt an imperative to do so. God, there's so many things to like talk about with this story. But real quick, Nando, before you jump in, um, what is she talking about when she says that there she wasn't happy with the assault on the Kennedys? She was referring to an ad that Ed Markey put out, which I thought was a fantastic ad. Amazing. And we're going to show you a snippet of it right now. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey introduced their Green New Deal. Stop climate change and create millions of good jobs in the process. We got to absolutely crush Donald Trump in November. But if we're going to end this era of chaos, that won't be enough. We got to make sure President Biden signs the Green New Deal. We can't wait. We got to have folks in the United States Senate who are willing to stand up for working people. That's who Ed Markey is. I need Ed Markey in the United States Senate. We asked what we could do for our country. We went out. We did it. With all due respect, it's time to start asking what your country can do for you. (gasps) How dare he attack the Kennedy dynasty? How dare he? The hallowed line that John F. Kennedy said about how that's not what you can do for your whatever that you know what I'm talking about but yeah I mean the funniest thing about this whole Pelosi endorsement thing is that um, according to the Markey campaign at least they outraised Joe Kennedy three to one on the after Pelosi endorsed him like Pelosi's brand is t- like no one likes her like no one likes her out of like the outside of like the most insane kind of resistance libs like no one likes her she her brand is absolutely toxic so um yeah it's it's fun to see it uh backfire right in their face she showed off her two twelve thousand dollar refrigerators as the pandemic had already started oh yeah like as people tens of millions of people had already been laid off and she's like let me show you my ice cream in my fancy kitchen like of course her brand is toxic so you know maybe yeah maybe she did a giant favor uh to ed markey but look um she also she hates progressives in congress she yeah. she absolutely hates them. For her, you know, is she really offended about the Kennedy dynasty being attacked? Maybe. Um, but I think that, you know, Ed Markey co-authored the Green New Deal with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He represents a, a brand of lawmaking that Pelosi absolutely despises. And then get a load of this. This is also, uh, you know, part of the story that just like blew me away. So the Washington Post reported that in an official statement, Pelosi, 80, 80, she's 80, signaled that it's time for a new crop of leaders who would represent this party's future. A shot at Marquis, who's 74, he's younger than her, who has been in Congress for 44 years. Yeah. What are you doing? Like, are you serious right now? Like, well, she has no, no shame at all. It's amazing. The the thing that also kind of bothers me about this whole thing, and, and there was a, a very good Jacobin debate between Dustin Guestella and Richard Yes Yeselson on confrontation versus collaboration with the Democratic Party. Ed Markey is the sort of perfect example of someone who was who did what he was, what a progressive is supposed to do of like working within the system, not like blowing anyone up too much, you know, maintaining kind of good, strong, progressive ideals. Like he's not like Bernie or anything like that. I mean, I don't want to say he's like the, the best senator of all time, but you know, he was kind of like a solid progressive and he kind of worked within the party, never, never like rankled the leadership too much. Uh, and now they're trying to murder him. So like, it, it just goes to show that you get no brownie points 
for collaboration. Like you, you really don't. Like they will turn on you in a second. And uh, you know, Joe Kennedy of of, of all people. I mean. Uh, I think it was Felix Biederbin on Chapel that called Pete Buttigieg a Vichy, Vichy millennial um, and like, you know, kind of like a fake millennial. And but at least I can recognize Pete Buttigieg's hustle. Like Pete Buttigieg has real hustle. Like Joe Kennedy doesn't even have that. You know, mm-hmm. he is a Vichy millennial with nothing. Like he just has nothing. He doesn't even have like the psychopathic drive that Pete Buttigieg has. So I would love to see him lose so, so much. Did you watch um, Pete Buttigieg's speech during the DNC? No, I didn't. He see it. always has this cra- like crazed look in his eyes. Yeah, like, I, like, no, he's a total psychopath. Like he, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, not to get too sidetracked, let's uh, also talk about the fact that Nancy Pelosi loves raising money. I mean, oh, she yeah. has branded herself as a master legislator. She's not a master legislator, no. but she is good at raising money. Oh yeah, and she loved you know exploiting the pain and suffering caused by the Trump administration in order to raise money for the DNC, for the Democratic Party. And uh, she did, in that video that we showed you, reference how Kennedy had helped to raise some money for the Democratic Party. The Intercept wrote about this, so I want to give you some details on that. During the 2018 midterm cycle, Kennedy raised nearly $5 million for other Democratic candidates and helped his party flip the House. During the cycle, he served as a Mid-Atlantic and New England regional vice chair for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and stumped for candidates in at least 15 states and D.C., including battleground races in Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Arizona. And so he's willing to play ball. He's willing to raise the money for the party, for candidates uh, within the party. And that's also one of the motivating factors behind why uh, Pelosi is doing this. I honestly do think that at the heart of it, um, there's the ideological disagreements. Uh, I'm sure that Nancy Pelosi absolutely despises the Green New Deal. She hates the fact that AOC joined uh, members of the Sunrise Movement um, in protest in Nancy Pelosi's office early on in AOC's uh, first term. And so, yeah, I, I, I just think that she is... The kind of person who will fight progressives, will fight, um, you know, socialist ideology harder than any awful Republican. Yeah. You know, she would much rather have Trump in office than have Bernie Sanders in office. That's who Nancy Pelosi is. And that's why I can't stand her. And she's just not effective in fighting back against Trump at all. I mean, look at what's gone down during the pandemic. This is the opposition party. Really? It's just absolutely devastating. And don't forget the immortal words of Nancy Pelosi when asked about the Green New Deal for the first time. She goes, oh, yeah, the, it's that green dream or whatever they're calling it, you know, like just absolutely dismissive. You know, so if you don't think that that's um, at the heart of this, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty obvious what's going on. Um, so definitely. And I want to just mention one final part of this, um, which is just two tweets that give you a sense of who Kennedy is and who Markey is. So Kennedy's tweet on healthcare. Not a single patient should be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy in the midst of a global health pandemic without a lawyer by their side. (laughs) And uh, here's Ed Markey. That's just Democrat brain, you know, to the max. It's It's Democrat brain. It's a perfect example of Democrat brain. And then Ed Markey, no one should ever have to face medical bankruptcy. We must eliminate all out-of-pocket medical costs. Yeah. Yeah. Bingo. That's, That's what we want. 
there is no choice. I am not, I'm not from Massachusetts. I went to college in Massachusetts, uh, but I don't vote in Massachusetts. If I were, my vote would be for Ed Markey easily. It's not a, there is no choice. Totally agree. All right. With that said, Kale, do we have any super chat questions to get to? Not yet, no. Uh, but this is the time for all you lovely viewers out there to send us some questions and we will answer them live on the Jacobin YouTube page. We do this every weekend. Wait, uh, before before you get into the question, Kale, I need to address a controversy that's been raging the past couple weeks on Jacobin Weekends. Uh I don't live in this house. I'm temporarily in this house. So everyone makes fun of me for not having books in the shelf. This isn't my house. Uh, this, this is not my house. I live in By LA. Way, and going after you for not having books on your shelves. They're making is, fun of me I, for I not having like books. I feel like it's like a uniquely Jacobin audience thing. Yeah. Right? Like, like I always get self-conscious. That, I'm like, I'm just going to have a loser. Self- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can That's get Verso to send them a few books. I don't want people books. judging me based on like which books I'm reading. Right. Yeah, yeah, you gotta. You actually have to use the uh, the paid promotion. You got to get yeah. some books right now. No, I, I, people have been tweeting at me, DM on Instagram. I'm like, no, dude, this is just not my house. Okay, so that's that's that. Then maybe you picked the wrong house. Maybe yeah. you should have gotten a house with books. Get a, yeah. a book maybe, for learned. Maybe man. I should have moved into the Verso Loft. <laughs> um, God, the Verso Loft is disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> I only say that. Okay. I, that joke is only because like there's so many parties that go on there that they like they'll pack that place. I mean, not in COVID anymore, but like whenever there's like an issue launch or whenever there's anything leftist, anything in Brooklyn, the one space that they can put a bunch of people in is the Verso loft. Right. And you just have like like a hundred sweaty socialist nerds all up against each other. Hell yeah. Now, I have been there plenty of times. And I have plenty of Verso books on my shelf because I love Verso. But the parties are, are, are one thing. Um, <laughs> Bosco is mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay. A um, couple of questions. The first one is, when is Kale starting a show? That's mm. in development. We're, we're not That's there yet. Uh, we're in development. That one's an easy one. We're negotiations more like a, you know, Kale... Uh, you know, he, he, we're he, finding he, a new spot. Yeah, he's not cheap. That one. Yeah. <laughs> um, someone else asks, uh, Brian asks, will Trump pardon Snowden? Um, I'll let you guys take that one first. I don't think so. I don't see it. Yeah. yeah. I don't, the reason why I don't see it is because even Julian Assange, who, you know, many perceive to be helpful to Trump, uh, was still treated pretty viciously by Trump's Department of Justice. You got to keep in like Trump has no guiding morals or principles. The only thing that Trump cares about is Trump and how much money he's making. So he's not going to care to care enough to put anything on the line to, you know, give Snowden what he deserves, which is freedom in the United States. Um, I, I just don't trust him and I don't trust uh, his DOJ. And I honestly don't trust any, um, you know, establishment politician in this country. Most of them have go- gone on the record to refer to him as like some treasonous uh, criminal who should be, you know, put in prison for the rest of his life. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, just Trump has no ability or strength or follow through to really meaningfully stand up to the blob, the national security establishment or whatever. And, 
you know, he floated the idea. I mean, this was like the, the one small glimmer of hope I had was that after he floated the idea, like a bunch of liberals went insane and they're like, he's got a he's got a part in the traitor Snowden shows that he's in the pocket of Putin and all that stuff. And I was like, keep doing that. I'm like, if, if there are liberals watching this show on Jacobin, keep getting really mad at Trump for potentially pardoning Snowden. That might piss him off enough to actually do it. But at the end of the day, I just don't see him meaningfully standing up to the national security blob. And if, because if he does really seriously try to pardon him, there will be a furious pushback from all levels uh, uh, of that kind of power structure yeah i mean yeah to add to that i mean you had liz cheney on one hand and then you had susan rice on the other hand both arguing the same thing that what trump was suggesting was so awful right yeah which goes back to like the issue i have with how this political system works right you supposedly have two parties but when it comes to a lot of different, you know, fundamental issues that we care about, they're in cahoots, they're in agreement. We don't really have choice. You know, we have the illusion of choice between the two parties. Right. Yeah. And that actually, it gets to a different super chat question someone asked. But just before that, I don't think Trump knows who Edward Snowden is. I think when the reporter asked him, it was like maybe his second time ever hearing the right. name. And he's just like, uh, yeah, we're going to look into that. That, yeah, maybe. Sure. Like, I, it was such like a like that, that was not I really don't think he has any idea what happened or if he like if he did at one point it's so not on his radar that I just I don't like and it would just be so out of touch with everything else Trump has done yeah. with foreign policy like the the well, whole idea that he's somehow like not an interventionist like because you know perhaps he and so you can maybe make the case. I don't think it's a good case. But you can maybe make the case that Trump himself is like a non-interventionist, but his entire administration is completely the opposite. So, hundred mm. percent. And also, um, you know, I, I always get tempted to just brush him off as like an incompetent fool because that's how he carries himself. But he actually did tweet about Snowden during the Obama administration, literally dozens of times, mm. and uh, referred to him as treasonous, called for his execution. Yeah. So that that's part of the reason why I don't trust him at yeah. all. In in part, our only him. hope is that he does it to own the libs. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I was too young for the Obama years. So I don't remember that. Um, what? How? Oh, what? okay. Joking. All right. Thanks, Pelosi. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> Michael asks, if Trump loses the election, do you honestly believe Biden's administration will go after him? I think that that's what we're, I mean, that's what we're saying. Like, they're, why would they go after the Biden administration? Like, honestly, like Trump's campaign promise in 2016 to lock her up was like central to that campaign. And he didn't do it because right. like, why would you arrest your predecessor for things that you yourself be tried for? Yeah, no, it's there. It's that's that's exactly why Obama didn't, you know, didn't go after the war criminals in the Bush administration. It's the same. There's no way. There's just no way they're going to do it. Yeah. Um, OK, so this is not a super chat question, but this is like, you know, this is family uh, okay. in like Jacobin world. So I'm going to do it anyways, because it's a good question. But. Because uh, Paul Prescott asks, do you think resistance liberals will continue to rally around the post service, the postal service, when Buttigieg tries to privatize it in 2028? No, <laughs> it's easy, <laughs> you know, uh, it's the easy answer. The short answer is no. I mean, there will be, 
I mean, I, I, progressive liberals will, you know, like I, I could see that there's like there probably is a meaningful split amongst like, you know, your, you know, your AOCs and um, your people to judges. But um, but the resistance libs will absolutely be on board. I mean, Kevin Drum, he's on board with privatization even today. Matty Iglesias was on board with private with privatization uh, in 2012. They will be on board with privatization in 2028. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, uh, they're completely opportunistic about this, which like we shouldn't then turn around and take we shouldn't be like moralist about this and say like, well, they don't believe that they like they don't believe in public goods. They don't believe in like that the post office should remain a public service like they actually would want to do this. Of course, that's true. But like we have to at the same time, you know, say, okay, sure, let's work with this. Let's try to like move forward with this. Like it's incredibly good that at this moment the democrats have made the right decision to try to defend the post office they don't it's but it's not a moral game it's such it's a strategic choice for the left yeah it's yes. partisan yeah 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 and also i mean look it goes it goes back to self-interest right i mean democrats now understand the importance of protecting the post office when it could potentially hurt their chances of re-election if they don't protect the post office um so you know yeah, there's there's a moralistic viewpoint on it, but I, I you're right. We should strategize and take advantage of this opportunity um, to push for better protections for the post office, so we can prevent it from getting privatized in the future. Right. Yes, I think that's totally true. Um, someone, these are all very speculative questions from our audience today, which is fine. We're just having a really speculative Saturday together. Um, Jericho asks, do you think, uh, like I do that if Biden and the Dems vowed to legalize marijuana on day one, they would win in a landslide. He thinks Jericho thinks it's an easy win. Uh, what do you guys think? Well, speaking of the Joe Kennedy and Markey race, Joe Kennedy didn't support marijuana legalization up until like a year ago or something insane. And he used it on the ground. That's, that's a, that's a way cops do use to, you know, do searches is like when they, you know, using the pretense of, of, of marijuana searches, um, you know, it's such, I mean, I agree. It's, of course, it's an easy win. It's, it's very popular. There isn't a meaningful kind of, I mean, not, not really like a huge meaningful, like kind of industry pushing against it. And it would be just like, there is no real downside to, to doing it. But the fact that they don't really do it or not doing it so enthusiastically shows just how out of step they are with their base on a, on a very basic level. Yeah. And look, we we have to also think about like the motivating factors, right? I mean, so many of these Democratic politicians have gone on the record and admitted to using pot themselves. So why is it that they refuse to legalize it? And there are like so many industries that have spent so much money on ensuring that we don't reclassify marijuana, that we continue prohibiting it on a federal level. And, you know, that it goes back to the bribery, the corruption, all of which we've legalized and it's just part and parcel of how our government is run now. Um, so I think that's really at the heart of why they're doing what they're doing and refusing to legalize it. I, I think if you get rid of that, if you get rid of those um, financial interests, I think maybe we would have a different situation. But right now, I mean, we're even like correctional officers um, spend quite a bit of money to ensure that we keep criminalizing people for possession of marijuana. Because think about how how 
our prison population would be affected if we legalized drugs. Then you don't really need as many people working in these jails and these prisons. So I, there's like a whole infrastructure around um, criminalizing substances. And we need to address that if we want any real change. You got to remember, politicians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, are self-interested. They're looking out for their own careers. And we want to we want to believe that they're in it to do the right thing. But those types of politicians are rare. Very few of them. Right. Right. I would say it's a, the question asking, like, would this would this equate a win for the Democrats or Biden? Win, 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 meaning like, uh, like, like a, an easy win. I took it as just like that on that issue or whatever. Ah, uh, okay. Sorry. So I guess not I necessarily it. for the election. I mean, it, it, right. it, it, there's no downsides and there's only upsides, but yeah, it right. doesn't guarantee a win in November. No way. I, yeah, I agree with you. Well, with, and, and just on that point, I mean, I think like the fact that Biden is so milk toast, like we've been talking about all day and we'll continue to talk about every single day until the election uh, and hopefully afterwards, um, is like the fact that, you know, it's a coin toss in a lot of the country, not everywhere, obviously, like, you know, where I'm in New York, it's obviously like hardcore Biden, like, because you have the typical liberals, but now also like the never Trumpers, mm-hmm. but like a lot of the country, I really do think it like, there's a good chance. Some of it's just going to be a coin toss, like of who ends up coming yeah. out on top. Now, I think, marijuana legalization could be the thing that pulls you over the top there, but elections are decided by healthcare and jobs. Like that's just what it always comes down to. It's like, who do I think is going to guarantee me or like maybe not guarantee me a job, but like create the conditions where I'll be able to get a better paying job. And in this country, of course, healthcare is tied to employment. So, you know, part of that is, you want like a better healthcare plan because we're all sick. And especially now in a, in a pandemic, like it's all the more important. Um, and just on Anna's note of like politicians are self-interested I, and kind of tying this back into what Mark Dudzik was saying a moment ago, which, you know, big ups to Mark Dudzik, who's like, as, as Nando was saying, like one of the most important kind of figures carrying the tor- the torch for many years. And everyone should check out the labor campaign for single payer because it's doing incredibly important organizing work. Um, but because politicians are self-interested and because we don't really have a genuine party structure in this country, like the parties are just fundraising apparatuses, you can appeal to people's individual interests over their party interests at times that like a politician, like this happens in the other direction, but like in West Virginia, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the very conservative, uh, Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin, right? Like Joe Manchin, like doesn't really give two shits about the party, I don't think. Like, you know, just in a very limited sense. But, like, he's much more interested in kind of furthering his own career and, like, following the money interests, like, in his state. If we could do the same, not on a money level, but, like, in a public pressure campaign level on politicians, there's a lot of, like, what, again, the Labor Campaign for Single Payer and other groups have been doing for things like Medicare for All is pressuring individual politicians one at a time to, like, consider, well, it's in my self-interest to support this legislation. And so this is a big tangent, but again, just on that, that point, like it's one of the greatest flaws of our electoral system, but it also like in this particular case can be useful if like we're able to have these kinds of big mass campaigns Mm -hmm. and these like highly targeted, highly coordinated across the country uh, campaigns. Yeah. 
Um, Nando, do you want to answer the FIFA question and we'll wrap for All the right. day? Yeah. Uh, I guess the question was, uh, <laughs> what is y'all's position on video games? And Fernando, what was the last FIFA game you played? Um, I guess, I mean, I spoke about this on TMBS this week, uh, on the post game. Uh, I used to play video games when I was a kid. Uh, I do not play video games as an adult. Um, I pretty much stopped in college. Um, and the, and the last game I played was FIFA. So I think, I guess the, the last FIFA game I would have been playing was FIFA 2008. I'm sure it's gotten way better since then in the 12 years since I played a FIFA game. Um, but we used to be really into it. I mean, I'm a big soccer fan and, uh, it's, it's hard to overstate just how important the video game of FIFA has been to making soccer popular in America. Um, you're starting to see like other athletes from other sports like be into soccer, you know, like Joel Embiid is a big Real Madrid fan, you know, um, and that's definitely because he loves FIFA. So, yeah, I mean, my position on video games is uh, I don't play them. Uh, if you insist upon playing video games as an adult, I'm not going to like, you know, give you a, a wedgie and stick your stick your head in the toilet. But uh, um <laughs> Yeah, I personally choose yeah. not to. No video games, no books. What are you doing? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking on my own. I, I come up with my own thoughts. Okay, you know, I just sit, I just sit in silence and come up with the takes on my own. <laughs> um, I do not play video games, uh, but it's not because I have anything against video games. I'm just like on a computer working pretty much. 16 hours a day. So when I do have an opportunity for a break, I want to be out in nature. So I'm usually out hiking during my free time, not yeah. on a computer playing video games. Yeah. Hmm. What about you, Kale? You play video games, dude? Not much lately. It just like I, I mean, I grew up playing video games, but never, never a ton. I mean, I have a really boring answer. I just don't play video games that yeah. much because I don't really have anything. I don't have a console. I don't have really like... Um, but when there is one available, then I, you know, I'll get sucked in for like, if I'm house sitting like someone who has like a PS4 or something, like I'll get home from work. It is, you know, back when we went places, um, get home from work and like sit down and be like, I'm just going to play a round of whatever for an hour. And Oh my God, it's 2am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'll admit that the last time I played a video game, I was like at a friend's house and she had, uh, uh, Mario Kart on like whatever the latest thing was. I don't know if it was a cube or a Wii. I don't know. It was like a, a Mario Kart, a very recent Mario Kart. And I played like a few races and I already saw like, you know, it's like the heroin coming back into your veins, you know, after, <laughs> after, <laughs> after you've been sober for 10 years and you're like, oh no. So yeah, no, I can see that they probably have gotten way better. Um, that they've definitely, uh, they can definitely suck you in even more than, you know, Mario running across the thing and jumping up and down. Although I used to play a lot when I was a kid, uh, which is a funny game to think about as an adult, especially as a, a person on the left, uh, was Contra. Did you guys play Contra? Which was no. basically a video game about the Contras in Nicaragua. It's like these two, like, uh, oh like these two, uh, like beefy, like Rambo type dudes, basically going into Nicaragua and killing people. Uh, it was a very fun game. God. Yeah. No, I did not. I've never played Contra. 
So yeah. you, just, um, you just sit on your own and just have war flashbacks to Nicaragua. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. My my roommate's owning me right now and texting me that I should lie and say that I'm a gamer, but sad to say, no. Yeah, just to get the people, <laughs> just to get the people on your side. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be authentic, Kale. I love it. I love that you're being honest. Um, and there's nothing, I mean, I, I'm not one of these people who like stereotypes video game players. I mean, there are people who engage in esports and are really good at it and they make a ton of money competing. And then when I hear about how much money they make, um, I get very depressed. (laughs) So I don't know. Maybe we're, maybe we're the fuck ups. Maybe we should have played more video games and excelled in that department. I already knew that for myself, but. All right. Um, well, I think I'll let it. you guys close us out. All right. Good round of questions. Next week, let's let's go from speculative to analytical, folks. Ooh. Yeah, and let's let's go the... ahead and remind everyone in the beginning of the show to send in their questions. Yeah. Right. Is yeah. that a challenge for the listener for the viewers? Yeah. It's actually a challenge for us. Like we're we're like you do the whole show, and it's like all right, let's take your questions. So let's right. let's remind people early on. So. Um, you know, especially if you have questions about some of the content that we're talking about on the program, um, we'd love to hear them. We'd love to answer them and clarify things. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you to Kale, uh, our trusty producer, Nando Vila. Thank you as always. And thank you to our audience. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show this week. And as always, we'll be back next week with another episode of Weekends. Have an awesome, awesome week and uh, hang in there, guys. Hang we'll in see there. you soon.